0: From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to the Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. The COVID-19 situation in Victoria is
1: escalating. Police patrolling nine public housing towers in Melbourne, where 3,000 residents are now unable to leave their homes in an Australian-first lockdown.
0: Some residents are claiming they've been left without vital supplies. Residents of nine public housing apartment blocks are now locked inside, given no notice to prepare for five days minimum in lockdown. While those in hotel quarantine, where many of these outbreaks have been traced back to, say that things have gotten worse, not better, since mismanagement was exposed. So have things gone too far to rein it back in in Victoria? Today, we look at Australia's second wave state and whether the things being done to halt the virus spread are enough, or whether in some cases, it's been too much. Yesterday, the Victorian government confirmed another 127 positive cases of COVID-19. Two men, one in his 90s, the other in his 60s, have become the country's 105th and 106th victims of the illness, dying in Victoria within 24 hours of each other. But while Australia is not living under an authoritarian regime, it seems like we've had to resort to the types of measures we saw happening in Wuhan in China when the COVID-19 outbreak first began locking people inside their apartment buildings to stop the COVID-19 coronavirus from spreading. On Saturday, over 500 police officers were dispatched to nine public housing towers in Kensington and Flemington in Melbourne after more than 20 cases of the virus were linked back to residents.
1: Given that there are positive cases in a number of those towers and given the very high density of that nature of housing, the public health advice is to close those nine towers. The reason why these measures
0: are in place is because this environment, this specific setting, has genuinely
2: explosive potential for the spread of this virus.
0: Since testing began, they've found more, with Monday's tally pushing that number up over 50. They're not allowed to leave for a minimum of five days or until every single resident is tested. If you refuse, you're considered to be positive and you'll have to remain inside for a further 14 days. This move to have police on every floor of the towers to ensure no one leaves has started a heated debate about the treatment of the people who live there. Some say this would never have happened if this was an apartment block in a financially well-off neighbourhood with people whose skin isn't so brown. Some residents are questioning why they're effectively in detention, while those who live in other suburban hotspots are allowed to leave for work or school, and other areas which are experiencing increasing numbers of cases aren't in any form of lockdown at all. While others say they understand the need for the total isolation of everyone inside, but are worried about how they're supposed to feed families and take care of loved ones.
1: The problem is, how can we survive? But there's nothing in our village. There's nothing. Everyone's starving.
2: I'm really concerned for the single-mother parents as well in the community. There's a lot of trauma that's going to come out of this in the next couple of days.
0: One man has already been arrested for trying to leave one of the towers. He allegedly bit a police officer who tried to stop him. So, why did they lock these people inside and not others? Emma King is the CEO of the Victorian Council of Social Services. Emma, what's the difference here? Why lock down the towers but not other suburbs where there are hotspots?
1: In terms of the briefing that the health department gave us, first and foremost, she left with saying, look, none of us wanted to do this. What we've seen is a really rapid rise in cases over a couple of days. And this is a community which is very densely populated and in terms of looking at movement and connection between the towers, they're concerned that there's likely to be more cases and I guess they're really worried that there's potentially hundreds of additional cases coming in and they're mindful around things like shared spaces, like laundry rooms, lifts and touch points. For example, if you were to compare it to another disaster such as a bushfire, you can see it. You can see it coming, whereas one of the challenges with COVID is we can't see it. You know, you might press a lift button and you might contract a disease that could kill you. So really, I understand that this is being implemented because the priority here is to save lives. This is a very, very delicate balance because at the same time that it's been implemented, it's been implemented in a way where there was no notice, it's been implemented in a way where we've seen masses of police arrive on site at the same time and understandably, the residents in that community are scared and actually it's been a shock, I think, for everyone in the community and everyone in Victoria. For a
0: lot of the people inside those buildings, they weren't prepared to go five days without leaving. And there are lots of reports coming out that some haven't been contacted within 24, 48 hours since this lockdown came into place, that they are struggling to get a hold of food and that some of the food that they have been given is not sufficient. Has this been handled properly as far as the welfare
1: of the people inside those buildings? The first many people knew about it was actually seeing the police arrive at their doorsteps and not knowing why. And it's important to remember here clearly that no one's done anything wrong. So people are being brought in for the protection of the residents, but for many people, it did not feel like that. And if you've come, for example, from a war zone and police are arriving at your doorstep, that's clearly a traumatic experience now I know that the department was working yesterday to deliver food there's been quite some criticism around some of that for example you know we've had calls to our online from people saying that you know they couldn't access baby formula and could we help them get some we had on site yesterday organizations such as the asylum Seeker Resource center and trades hall that were flat out just organizing prepared meals that were culturally appropriate as well keeping in mind we have a raft of different national represented on the housing estate and it's not just about food it's about making sure that there's people on site who can help people understand what's going on why it's happening and that they get the support that they need and that goes to food it also goes to things like medication as well as as in any other part of our community there are people on the estate who've got disabilities who have got chronic illnesses who have got mental health issues And we have to make sure we are meeting every single need that every single resident has, and that we're coming at this in a way that is compassionate. And if there's some mistakes that have been made through enacting this at speed, it is critically important that they are rectified immediately.
0: What about those people who might be experiencing a domestic violence situation? We know the stats are bad, and when you've got 3,000 people all in one place, the odds are... That you know, a good number of those might be experiencing a domestic violence situation. Are police checking on those people? Are welfare checks being done to make sure that no one is stuck inside with an abuser?
1: Firstly, can I say Safe Steps, which is our twenty four seven family violence agency in Victoria, is going to be on site as of today. I think there's challenges attached to that. So, for example. We know that for a number of women, they're more likely to disclose to someone, for example, a hairdresser or they might go to their local pharmacy and let someone know that way. It's pretty hard to let someone know if you're trying to pick up the phone when you're all in the same house and actually you're not allowed to leave. So I think there's a balance here that's going to have to be struck. So I know that Safe Steps will be on site and that's fantastic. We also know that the Royal Melbourne Hospital will be on site as of today. They're going to have a marquee at the front of the estate. We need to make sure that for women and children who are victims of family violence, that they're actually able to safely report it. In the early days of the pandemic, we saw underreporting of family violence. The numbers actually dropped and it dropped because women and children couldn't actually get away and get out of their homes to report it. Now, at that stage, we were able to leave our homes. The people on the housing estate at the moment can't do that. So it's going to require a lot of sensitive thinking about how do we make sure that women and children are safe? How do we find ways if people are victims of family violence that they're actually able to report that and report that in a safe way as well? It's it's really, really important.
0: Have we done the right thing by all of Australia, as far as making sure that the information about COVID-19 is available in many different languages. We know that a lot of people who live in these towers come from very different backgrounds and some of the feedback has been that they aren't able to access the information because English is not their first language.
1: I think we need to do more. It's really clear one of the things that was called for pretty much immediately on Saturday was to say, well, look, a lot of the information was only provided in English. There weren't community leaders who could provide information in multiple different languages. We live in a very multicultural community here and broadly throughout the whole of Australia. And in working with, for example, the Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria, We've been really mindful about the role they need to play at the forefront of this and the role that our community leaders from different nationalities need to be able to play because they're key influences within communities and we need to make sure that people are fully aware of what is happening and are fully aware of how they can stay as safe as possible and how they can get support that they need. We've already seen lots of
0: people already step up to help out those who are in lockdown in the towers right now. Is there anything that we can do... From interstate, from overseas, from afar, to help these people out right now?
1: Firstly, if for any tenants of the estate who might be tuning into this, there's two weeks of rent relief that's available. There's hardship payments that are available of between seven hundred and fifty and fifteen hundred dollars. For people who are wanting to donate, and we have seen a groundswell of support in the local community and so far throughout Victoria and anything you can do to put that word out further would be fantastic any donations etc one of the things we're really working to do at the moment is to have a central point for people to contact so Victorian Trades Hall Council is receiving donations of which they have pledged and will make sure are directed to those who are living on the estate Others, such as the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, are providing food. There's a list of organizations people can donate to that's readily available. I'm pretty sure it's up on our BCOS website as well. I'd really encourage people to donate. We've been inundated with requests of people wanting to donate toys and run toy drives and money and food. And I think it speaks to the fact that if we go back to the initial language around the pandemic, that we're all in this together. At the moment, it feels like we're not in this together. It feels like there's one group of people who are being treated very differently. And we're seeing, I think, this groundswell of people wanting to support those who are in the housing estate because of empathy for the situation they're in and also acknowledging that they are paying a very high cost in order to keep themselves safe and to keep the broader community safe by virtue of living in really heavily crowded homes.
0: Some of the outbreaks have been traced back to the mismanagement of security and staff at hotels, where there are travellers returning from overseas in quarantine. But despite the work of journalists exposing the issues, some staying in hotels right now are saying the situation hasn't improved. These are tweets written by Megan Clements, a freelance journalist based in Paris, who's in an airport hotel in Melbourne,
2: as read by Mamma Mia's Gemma Bath. Here's what I've seen. Security guards without masks or gloves. Holiday Inn staff without masks or gloves. Guards lacking training on how to dispose of PPE. At one point, I was asked by an unmasked supervisor to put used PPE into a guard's hands rather than the dedicated infectious waste bin. Guard numbers have been cut in half, from four per floor to two. Staff members, not guards, have told me they're moving between different quarantine hotels for shifts, And external guests are checking into the hotel and it's still bookable online. We've also
0: heard how some security and or staff at other hotels have taken quarantined guests out shopping or have even had sexual interactions with them. The Premier of Victoria, Daniel Andrews, has refused to be drawn on the issue, which is now the focus of a judicial inquiry. So is Victoria now in a place where this sort of complacency has pushed them past the point of being able to return to the easing of restrictions? Dr Kirsty Short is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Queensland. Doctor, what's the situation with this community transmission in Victoria now compared to the peak back in March? Are we seeing the same kind of infection rate here?
2: In terms of the number of cases, this is essentially equivalent, if not more, as really the peak of what we saw in Victoria early on in the pandemic. But I think what we've got to remember as well is that there is a lot more testing going on and it's a lot more localized at the moment. So there is definitely a lot of community transmission and perhaps more than what was going on initially, but it's also, we've learned a lot more. And so these testing blitzes are helping us detect that much more rapidly than we were in the early stages. So yes, it's a point of concern, But I think people should be really reassured that all the right measures are being taken now and and we've learned a lot from our past experience with this virus.
0: These people who are testing positive right now, are we seeing more cases of people who are asymptomatic or are we still seeing a lot of people end up in hospital really sick and requiring ventilators?
2: Again, it's hard to say. I haven't seen all the hospital data, but in general, the rule of thumb, and this hasn't changed throughout the pandemic, is if you have no underlying condition and if you're not elderly, the odds are you're going to have a mild or moderate infection. Having said that, what we are seeing is that now globally there's some individuals who have had an infection and haven't really resolved the infection or still experience symptoms months after. So even if you're not in a risk group, it's best not to get infected. But certainly these risk groups are still emerging as risk groups for high mortality and that hasn't changed.
0: With the situation happening in Melbourne in the Towers, are we doing the right thing by locking that down? We saw it happen in China, in Wuhan specifically, when the virus was first starting to circulate, that apartment blocks were locked down and no one was allowed to leave. Is this the right thing to do or should we have gotten those people out of those towers and put somewhere else?
2: The really hard thing about this pandemic is that it's unprecedented. We have no real point of reference before six months ago about what to do. So I do feel for the people in this position who have been locked down because I think it would be a very difficult time. And I think it's great to see that people of Melbourne are supporting them with food, with entertainment packages for kids, all those sorts of things. In terms of from a public health perspective, I do think that this was a good decision. And the reason for that is that we know from other countries that disease transmission is particularly pronounced in areas of high-density housing. So this is exactly what happened in Singapore a little while ago. There was a resurgence in cases in Singapore, and it was predominantly amongst migrant workers who were living in dormitories. So again, this close contact housing. So it is a very harsh measure. And again, we shouldn't underestimate the severity of it on the communities that have been affected and we should continue to support them. But from a public health perspective, we really do need to do something to get this outbreak under control. And I think it's a sensible measure.
0: Dr Short says, we have come a long way since we first heard about COVID-19 and that we should be grateful for the numbers they're finding with the testing blitz in Melbourne right now, because that means they're testing the right people in the right area and they're catching those who are positive. And there's nothing wrong with the tests themselves, which you'd start to think of if the numbers started to drop dramatically. And because this is a slow incubating virus, these higher numbers with the measures we're putting in place should start to show signs of falling in a couple of weeks' time.
2: I think people just need to remember that we will get through this. And even if you're living in Melbourne, and yes, it's unfortunate there's an outbreak, all the right things are being done.
0: That's all for The Quickie today. For more episodes, you can find the back catalogue at mamamia.com.au forward slash The Quickie. This episode was produced by Melanie Tate with audio production by Ian Camilleri.